My name is Hans. I get to serve as one of the pastors here, uh, and it is a joy. Thanks for joining us this season as we go through Advent. Uh, you've heard the reading. I don't know. There will be, I think, a, a time or, or three when uh, the readings deviate. What you hear Johnny read and me read won't be the same, but the theme is going to be the same. Uh, this morning is another passage where the the passage is the same. The same passage, Isaiah 11, you heard me, you heard uh, Nick share that with his kids. And I'm going to do uh, the first nine verses of Isaiah chapter 11. That's where we'll be uh, this morning. So the first nine verses of Isaiah chapter 11, it reads like this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. The spirit of understanding, wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked." Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. There's mountain again. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Let's pray. Father, you sent your son into this world to bring peace, to give hope, to restore And when he returns, he will bring peace and we'll see it even more fully. We long for that and look to that. But we also know that peace isn't cheap. It's incredibly costly. And Help us this morning in Isaiah 11 to see these truths and to hold them dearly in our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we are in Advent, you see, we talk about hope, we talk about peace, we have different themes that we discuss, and you will find that these themes, they're not like a, a pie you would eat at Thanksgiving or Christmas, or just because it's, you know, Sunday, you know, whatever reason you need to eat pie. It's not like you just kind of go, well, this is the peace slice, and this is the hope slice, and this is the joy slice, like, and, like, like that's not really, you go, okay, well, I'm, now I'm peace, but I don't have hope. I have peace, but not hope. I have hope, but not joy. I have joy, but not peace. Like, like it doesn't really work like that when you're considering who Jesus is and what Jesus brings. And so you will hear, as we talk about hope or peace or joy, you will hear the themes all intertwined because they belong together. Because they come in the person of Jesus. And so you don't parcel out Jesus. They come in the person of Jesus. But the themes themselves are significant. Because I do believe for you or for me that there are uh, different ways that we engage. or different things that make sense. Perhaps there's things we have been instructed in that are easier for us to uh, hold on to than others. There's things that we have seen or uh, felt that we go, oh, this is, this is what 
peace with God is. So uh, there'll be different ways that we might feel it, but they all come together because they all come in the person of Jesus. So uh, as we consider peace during this Advent season, I first wanted to ask this question, which is just, when are you most at peace? When are you most at peace? Is it while you're fishing on the lake? Maybe for some that is. Or you're in the deer stand and it's four in the morning. I think you're crazy, for one. Get up at four in the morning to sit in the cold. Some people love it with the mosquitoes hanging out. I have a friend who's a big duck hunter. So the duck blind's really important. I'm like, you dug a hole, you dug a pit, and you just sit in a pit early in the morning by a pond. If you like it, bro, go for it. But when I talk to hunters, which, which I'm not one, as you can tell, they go, oh, yeah, just to be out there, it's so quiet. I love it. It's so peaceful. Is it when you have all your kids and grandkids around? You just go, this is, this is perfect. Even if they're yelling and screaming, even if they don't like each other, this is, I just want you together. I just want to be together. All the hens are there. You get to hang out. Just, this is beautiful. Is it staring off on a beach? I see so many toe pictures. You know, people go to beaches and they just take pictures of their toes. I know it's really of the water, but the feet have to get in there somehow. You go, this is perfect. I just can't wait to go do this. Or you're taking a walk or you're isolated by yourself or you're, uh, I don't know, wherever you are. There are all these kinds of ways that we feel peace. We go, this is really peaceful. Perhaps we're looking for peace. We kind of go, well, we're going to have peace uh, at this point in time in the future. There'll be peace when this election result is known, or there's peace when this transition of power happens, or there's peace when this happens in my job, or there's peace when uh, kids are home from college for whatever it might be. And we go, that's when, right? So maybe it's not some context you know, maybe it's some context or space that you're waiting for. That's when there's going to be peace. And it's funny to me, and it's a bit ironic, uh, because as Christians, we know peace as a person. We know, right, the scripture actually say, for he himself is our peace. Like, that's the language that is used. And so we, we have the scriptural language of he himself is our peace, and yet when we think about peace, we often think about a destination. So we don't think of Jesus, we think of Oceans, or mountains, or vacations, or family gatherings, or whatever it might be. That's what we kind of hold on to. Context, though, the place does matter. In fact, as we read in Isaiah 11, they're, they're, those, are, those are things. Talking about things that this ruler will bring. And so it's not as if you want a place where there's just constant war. That's not the point at all. But you have to realize the source and who brings it and what that looks like and how that might be when we consider the peace of God. It doesn't mean that we're stuck, though. We can't wait until Isaiah 11, and so for right now, everything's just going to be terrible and we're going to yell at each other all the time. Hope that's not the case. But we need to consider the peace of God. The peace he has brought, the peace he is bringing. That's both of those. Isaiah 11 talks about the one who has come and what happens, and then there's all these, again, discussions of things that haven't happened yet. So what type of peace is Jesus bringing, and how does God speak about it? 
we will hear about how it looks, but we'll also hear about the one who brings it. Isaiah 11. As we said last week, we were earlier in Isaiah, Isaiah has this way of talking about what will be, and then he contrasts what will be with what is, and for the nation of Israel at this point in time, uh, what will be is much better than what is. Uh, What is, is ruling nations, powerful nations that will come in and wipe you out. Uh, The northern kingdom goes in 722, the southern kingdom will go in 586, and Isaiah is prophesying in the 700s, and so this is all coming about 700 years before Jesus' entrance into the world, his incarnation, and the situation for the nation is such that you don't really want it. You don't want to have this other big nation coming in. But he will always follow up what is with what will be, and then what will be with what is, and so there's this constant back and forth that you feel. So in Isaiah 2 was like that. Isaiah 11 is the same. And what we're going to see is this promise that Isaiah gives to Israel. They will be wiped out by the Assyrians, and there's this promise of a little plant. A little plant is going to make everything right. I mean, have you ever tried to raise a plant? You're afraid that you don't, you don't want to step on it, a sprout. You don't, want to, you, don't want it to, you don't want to destroy it. It seems so fragile. And so here comes the Lord going, oh no, there'll be a plant. You're like, I would prefer a sword. If I could have a sword or, you know, something more powerful than a shoot coming up out of the ground that my weed eater will go over by mistake. But that's what the Lord gives because the Lord always gives things that are better than we expect. At the same time, rather opposite of what we expect. So we'll see what he brings, how it looks, the power this ruler comes with, and the world that will be. So we're going to start with this promise from verse 1, that God brings his ruler from what appears desolate, a land that appears like it's nothing. So God brings this ruler from this desolate place. The ruler doesn't come out of a palace in a sense, like it's not like, oh yes, here I come, right? Like to save you from uh, the castle. The ruler comes from among the desolation, the destruction. 11.1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. That's the promise. The rest of the passage is talking about what happens because of this shoot from the stump of Jesse. But a shoot is rather fragile. And how the stump get there in the first place? Why is it there? Well, I'm just going to read this to you. Uh, it won't be behind me, but Isaiah 6 then talks about it. Uh, Isaiah's prophesying all these things that are going to come to pass. And when you've got to get bad news a lot, it gets a little exhausting, doesn't it? When you have to tell people this is how it's going to be and it won't be great yet. I mean, that's not a fun person to be. To be the one that says, okay... And usually, like, even in a family, there seems to be the one who's the bearer of bad news. Like, oh, you do it. I don't want to tell him. You do it. You do it. Well, Isaiah, on behalf of 
the Lord for the, the nation of which he is a part is regularly bearing bad news for the present that has great hope for the future. Isaiah 6, he goes to the Lord, how long do I have to say this? How long, O Lord? And he says, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes his people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remains in it, that'd be a remnant, it'll be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. And so Isaiah's going, how long do I have to say these things to my people? And God goes, until there's almost nothing left. You just keep saying it. Until there's almost nothing left. So in chapter 11, there is, in this future version, there's nothing left. There's just tree stumps that are there. And at one time, the nation was there, and it was lofty, and it was strong, but now the land lies waste. You see it. So the way I drive here on a Sunday is getting cleared out, especially as I get to like Spring Stubner. Like it's just really cleared out. And acres and acres and acres and acres and acres and acres and acres. Not you acres, like other kind of acres. And it's funny how you go across that, and I lose my bearings, because you're kind of, you don't realize how much you, you like, when you're driving the same roads, like certain cues you look for. And so I'll miss a turn, because I'm not used to there being nothing there. I finally learned, oh, now you turn when there's nothing. This is nothing in the land. And yet, what's Isaiah saying? Oh, there's going to be this, burp, this shoot, not a weed. Not this thing you can't kill that just annoys homeowners. There's this shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse. And you heard uh, Johnny say this, that, that Jesse's the father of King David. He's the father of King David. Now, now people will try and figure out, what is that? Why, why say not? Why don't you just say David, right, from the line of David? Why do you have to say it from the stump of Jesse? And there's different people who give different reasons for this. Uh, but the reason it, it does make sense to me in how we think about future is like we want some kind of powerful, kingly destroyer. And so when Isaiah prophesies farther back than when the, you know, that line begins of David, you go to Jesse, it's almost as if the Lord is saying, this was going to happen before there was a guy on the throne for the nation. Like this, was, this was in the works long before So from the stump of Jesse comes this plant that is fruit-bearing. Not a redwood, you know, not not something that you dig a hole or or blow a hole through and drive through in California. No, this little shoot will bear fruit. And it's going to be different. This ruler will actually live in a different way. Earthly rulers want to rule with power and might. They want to demonstrate their strength. They need to show their strength. 
They need to flex their muscles as a nation and say, this is who we are. You don't mess with us. Remember when I was talking about my uh, West Wing quote? Like, I, I want a disproportional response. I want something that comes back harder. You hit me, I hit you harder. You offend me, I have, I'm going to come back at you harder. That's what we want. That's what we look for. But God's ruler, hmm, God's ruler has a different power. God's ruler has a different power. It's not the kind of power that comes from worldly wisdom or worldly strength. It doesn't come from the newest book on leadership. Come to my office and you will see that I don't have the newest books anymore because they come out about every three days. I'm out of them. But I got a lot of them. The newest book on leadership or political ruling in an ancient land. Like whatever you want to say, you won't, you won't, you won't find the way this ruler lives in the wisdom of the day. And there's this key phrase that you see in Isaiah 11 verses 2 in the first part of 3 that shows you this. Listen to the repetitive word. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. What do you see repetitive in this? Spirit, Lord, fear of the Lord? You see these phrases, so you go, this is a different kind of person. The one who is coming, Isaiah says, is not the one who's going to live like the rulers of the world or act like the rulers of the world. This one has a different way of living. Now, this is important for us because there's times, in fact, like if you read Judges, you'll see with Samson that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson regularly. Spirit of the Lord. You'll see times as you're reading about the Spirit of the Lord and how the Spirit of the Lord moves upon people. But as Isaiah's talking about this ruler, he highlights the Spirit of the Lord will rest, remain on this person. Now, not just come for a moment of empowerment, but will rest there, be there, reside there. Different than any human power, there's the Spirit of the Lord. Wisdom and understanding. There'll be a different way that this ruler perceives life and talks about it. Counsel and might. It's a different power, it's a different counsel, it's a different way to speak, to teach, to instruct, to direct the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. But not only is it the fear of the Lord, if you look in verse 3, it's the delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. That this ruler enjoys, delights in fearing God. different than any ruler, different than any person, different than any king, different than anybody we've seen. There's someone coming and they're doing something differently than anyone else or anything you've seen. Empowered, delighting.
Well, if you are reading with us in our F260, we're finishing up the Gospel of Matthew as we finish the month of December, then you have read, now I don't think Matthew 3 was written to fulfill Isaiah 11, but you have read then with us Matthew chapter 3. And you see the resting of the Spirit of the Lord upon the Son of God, Jesus, at his baptism. Matthew 3, starting in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan uh, uh, to John to be baptized by him. That would be his, people say his cousin, his relative, John the Baptist. John would have prevented him saying, no, 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 I need to be baptized by you. You, Do you come to me? Jesus answered, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So he consented. John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to what? Rest on him. Rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. A different ruler a different power, different strength, different wisdom, different knowledge, different counsel, different might. This is someone who does different things and lives differently because of the power of God that comes through the Spirit of God. And it rests on him. So Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, says the Spirit of the Lord will rest on This ruler, this shoot, Matthew chapter 3, what happens at his baptism? The Spirit of the Lord descends and rests on him. So we have this declaration of a ruler. We have a different power that this ruler will have. And then we start to see what happens because of it. Now this ruler is interacting with people. And we get to see then how the ruler interacts. And what we see is that God's ruler judges with righteousness. Now, righteousness, we talk about, we say also right standing and right living. Uh, That to rule with righteousness means to rule in a way that is in keeping with what is right. To live in a way, to rule, to speak, to declare, to counsel, to act, and, and judge in a way that is in keeping with God's character. That that is righteous. That he's going to rule this way. He's going to do these things. So the back half of verse verse 3, 4, and 5. He shall not judge by what his eyes see. Or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And decide with equity for all the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness be the belt of his loins. Now I wanted to speak about a few of of those pieces. When my kids get mad at each other, or your kids, we'll say your kids because my kids are perfect. And I hear something upstairs. Now if you have a two-story house, then whatever happens upstairs is magnified a million times downstairs. Uh, but you, we've become accustomed to learning the noises, and so if it sounds like a thunderstorm, it's normal. If it sounds like a shotgun, it's something. 
And so we, you know, we heard a noise, like, you know, we heard something and we went, that wasn't a normal upstairs noise. And we, you know, so what do I have to do? I walk in, I'll go upstairs, walk in. I have one kid doubled over on the ground crying. I have one kid who is saying what's happening. And I have another kid who is saying, I was here. And so what do I have to do, right? Like, what do I have as a parent in that moment? I have what I see and what they've said. I'm rather limited, aren't I, in my ability to properly adjudicate whatever's going on because I wasn't there. And yet, what is the case with God's ruler? He's not going to judge by what he sees or what he hears. It's not just, what, what, what can I do? What did you say to me? That's not all that he has to go on. Why? Different power, different strength, different source, different person. That's why even if we just long for our court system or our judges or our whatever, like that's still going to fail us. Why? Because it's all about what you can say and what you can prove and what you can show. And it's going to be limited. It's going to be imperfect. Not so with this ruler. Not so with this judge. Doesn't have to decide disputes with what he hears. Go, well, you know. Mom and I need to talk. That's what we do. Mom and I need to talk, and we need to go into the room and figure out, you're all punished because we can't figure out who did the right thing or the wrong thing. But with righteousness, this person judges the poor and decides. But if you look at the back half of four, you see that it's not just declaring righteousness, but it is actually judging what is wicked. Both of those things. The ruler does the right thing. The right thing is not to let evil exist. Just indefinitely. Evil's just going to be there. And so because he's ruling with a different power, he's able to speak in certain ways that are true and act in certain ways that are in keeping with truth, and he's able to judge those ways that, that are not in keeping in this world. In fact, if you look at four, you see he strike the earth with the rod of his mouth a weird image rod of his mouth but let's think about it let's think about truth what does john for example go to great lengths to explain jesus as in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god he was there in the beginning with god that that we look for strength in governments by military might, the size of your nuclear arsenal, how much money do you spend on it, how many people do you have there. We look at might with our fists. This one brings judgment with his truth. That's a completely different way of bringing judgment. With the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. My uh, a pastoral guy I like that I've never met, I've just walked by, kind of counts, uh, is Ray Ortland. You may know Ray Ortland. I don't know him, but I walked by him. 
And I remember hearing him one time say, when I get done preaching, and he's now uh, transitioned at his role in Emmanuel Nashville, and he's emeritus or whatever role they give the guy who did that, does that. Um, he goes, when I preach, and I, I have this heart too, not nearly as good, but I try. He goes, I want people to float out. I just want them to float out. I want them to be so joyful and glad. And I go, yeah, the week beats you down enough. I mean, we, it be, uh, you don't need me to come in here and say, hey, no, all of you stink for different, various reasons. And you all got to get better. Clean it up. I'm sick of it. Though in my weaknesses, that's sometimes how I feel, right? Sometimes how you feel. So when you come to something like, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth or with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Well, what do I do with that? Because it's there. I don't want you to crawl out depressed. And this is what you have to remember. That yes, God brings judgment. He does bring judgment. He judges sin. He judged sin on the cross. Like, so, so God is a judger of sin. He is not complicit in it with us. He judges sin. And there will be a day when he destroys wickedness once and for all. And we look for it. We long for it. And we wait for it. But remember, of all that has gone on in this passage, verses 1 through 9, we haven't even gotten to that back half yet, it is not a hopeless, joyless, peaceless declaration of who this person is. When you judge righteously, that does mean that evil will be punished. But even in knowing this, and this is the goodness and grace of God for us, is that there is a way through Christ to avoid punishment. I'm not, we don't sit here and, and just hand out, pedal, get out of hell free cards. It's not kind of our, our MO as a church. But, but through Christ, you cannot go to hell. It's still true. You can, you can, you can avoid, be removed from the punishment for sin because it was placed on Jesus and you can receive life everlasting by trusting in the work of Christ for you and your sins. So the judgment of sin is coming, but we have seen on the cross God's provision. The provision is Jesus. And through faith in Jesus, you need not fear. In fact, you can look at that and go, it is right for God to judge the wicked of which I was one. I was one. And it would have been me if not for his grace. But now I'm a recipient of his life, his hope, his peace. Now, what then we can see is we realize that where you start to feel that all these things haven't happened yet. We talk about Advent as first coming and second coming. It's like you start to read passages and you go, this isn't all now, is it? 
Some of this stuff is later. We get to receive joy now. We have peace with God now. We don't have everything. Well, you see then in uh, the following verses, 6, 7, 8, 9, you see that the ruler brings peace to the world. The ruler brings peace to the world. Which is funny, because like our song Joy to the World is kind of like a future song. In a sense, like it's about the, like, like, fix it all. <laughs> fix it all. And so Isaiah is going to go into these illustrations. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. And so what you're going to see is all these kind of current juxtapositions. These don't happen. This doesn't happen. This doesn't happen. This doesn't happen. The cow and the bear shall graze together. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. The wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den, over a snake's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, these are all situations that don't currently exist. These are all things that that happen in this realm of peace that we don't have. Wolves and lambs hanging out together. I was sitting, you know, sealing up Christmas cards on uh, yesterday, I think it was, you know, sitting there, college football's on, and we're sealing Christmas cards, doing our whatever thing, and I'm watching, I don't know why our neighbor's cat likes to hang out at our house, but the cat does. So I'm watching this cat try and take out this squirrel. And I know it doesn't stand a chance because it's a domesticated cat. It eats cat food. It doesn't know how to hunt. But still, what does the domesticated cat feel when it sees a squirrel but attack? It didn't do a good job. I mean, it, seriously, for like five minutes, there's the squirrels in the tree and the cat's on the ground. And then the squirrel made a break for it and the cat got confused and didn't know where to go. But we still have a world where there's hunters and hunted where there's pain, where things die, where places where you tell your kids, don't go there, don't go there, don't walk there, be sure you have your shoes on. We have all those things that we'll say, and what is Isaiah pointing to, but to say, this ruler is ushering in a time when that will never be. That the world cries for peace, it longs for it, governments try and seek it, Families try and manufacture it. Workplaces try to enforce it. And still, it eludes us. But it doesn't elude God. He can bring it. Now, as we gaze into the future, remember how I talked about like when I drive to Dallas or I drive to Baton Rouge, you start to see things in the distance. And as you get closer, you see more things. And so as we read this passage, it's kind of showing us this thing in the distance, and we look at the scriptures, and we get closer to it, and people would generally say that this part of the passage refers to one of two events, either the millennium, the millennial kingdom, and if you finished up Revelation with us, which was right before Matthew, then you read about it. You read these passages, and you go, what happens in these thousand years? Well, some would say that Isaiah's looking to a time that is different than forever, where there's this kind of peace on the world that doesn't yet exist. And so looking to that kingdom. 
And that is one incredibly strong, solid response. Like, this is the thing. And I think as biblical interpreters go to it, they try to go, well, it's not totally future. It's not like, I don't think, I don't think the new heaven and new earth are going to be like that. Uh, but maybe they are. And so they go, but there's also this thing that we see about the millennium in Revelation. Maybe it's that time. And so they put it there. Uh, the other place that people would put it is the return of Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. They just go, Isaiah's illustrating this future time where there's going to be peace on the world in ways that we have never seen. And he's going to illustrate it with images that make sense for us. That he's not going to illustrate it in ways that we just go, I don't even know what that is. We don't have that color on earth. We don't have that animal. We don't have that experience. And so that he's illustrating it with things that make us go, oh, okay, so this is, this is the world that's coming where the whole world is filled with the grace of God. Now, what I love is if you try to look up people and where they say and where they land, the most gracious guys are generally going to give you an answer and they're going to say, and my answer is tentative. That's, what the, that's, the, that's the Bible commentary language for it. My, my answer is tentative. Uh, because because certain certain interpretive moves help you put together other passages better. The way I explained it one time, maybe about a year ago, is like when you're packing for a trip and you have to pack as much as you can and you put it all in the car and you realize you don't have it all, right? Our theological systems are kind of like packing for a trip. We, like, we, we, we get the system and it makes a lot of sense and we can get like 95% of my luggage in the car, but then there's that 5% where I just have to hold it out the side while I drive down the road and, I, and somebody goes, well, what about that? I'm like, I don't know what to do with that. I just don't know how to make that part work. But I got the rest. It seems okay. It's the same thing as you're kind of trying to land on what is Isaiah 11, you know, 6 through 9. What's happening there? It's like you kind of go, well, I got to figure out how this fits into what's going on. And I need a system that helps me make sense of it as I read and engage and discuss. But still, I know that like you could move it and it might fit differently. It's kind of how it is. Uh, and luckily at Genesis, we're not going to force your hand to pick one to join. Like, what's your millennial position? You need to know, or else you won't be welcome. It'd be a little weird. So here's what's not tentative. That Jesus will rule. That his return will bring peace. That there are still things in this world that need to be fixed, and that Jesus will do that. The ruler will do that. What do we look for? What do we long for? We look and long for a world full of the knowledge of the Lord. And you, Christian, in this room with me, you can help people see this even in your peaceful disposition now. Where you don't get worked up about what the next month and a half is going to look like. That you don't get worked up about what the next quarter is going to look like, or two quarters. You don't get worked up about what's going to happen here, or what's going to happen with this political appointee, or what's going to happen in this thing. That You don't have to get worked up over that. Why? Because you know the one who's going to fix whatever mess we make. That he's the one that brings a peace that surpasses all understanding. And so, during this season... And this year, you have likely been at your wits' ends many times. Many times. 
Even the escapes that you might usually find likely aren't providing you what you'd hope. Well, I couldn't go on a vacation this year. I couldn't do this. I couldn't do Thanksgiving like that. I couldn't, the things that I usually hold on to to kind of help reset me don't exist. I can't use them. That's okay. And in fact, it might even be good. And I'll tell you why. Because Jesus is your only hope of peace. That perhaps you're being brought to your wit's end so that you realize that you've been doing it wrong. We all get there. Where you go, I can't make it work. I can't make my kids get along. I can't make this thing right. I can't make the numbers add up. I can't do this thing right. I can't. Good. Good, because it's in those moments when we're going, what gives? That we can say, turn to Jesus. For he himself is our peace. If you're looking to try and find peace in this world, you get temporary moments of quiet. Yeah, you might get that. But it won't calm the ache. It won't undo what almost a year of disrupted life has done, and it won't fix what's going on deep inside of you. That you aren't right, that you need something more. Jesus is more. He not only puts us at peace with God, but resolves our need to make everything in this world work out for our favor because we know what's coming. So now we become agents, peacemakers, peace bringers. Remember when we did Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers? Well, now that we know what peace is, we can be bringers of lasting peace because we're not trying to find it in a situation. We found it in a person. Where are you most at peace? Where are you most at peace? If the answer is not secure with my Savior, I'm going to challenge you to ask why that might be. Seek it out.